This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Ann Thompson. I'm Ryan Latanzio. And we have been watching movies, basically. This isn't just about, you know, some of it's catching up with movies that we didn't see at other festivals before the New York Festival starts, which is on Friday. But um, we have a bunch of things to go over. And the first thing we're going to talk about is Maestro, which I finally caught up with. And this is an interesting question of, recognizing the talent of someone like Bradley Cooper, who has just given his all for years now to develop the screenplay and about the life of Leonard Bernstein and his relationship with his wife, Felicia. But the question I ask here is why is that the uh, the way he wanted to go? Why is that the, the approach, the narrative approach that he took to this to this story? I had the same concern. I mean, when you look at this movie, obviously it's sort of a microcosm of their marriage, really. It's really a marriage story. And I feel like, um, you know, we all love Leonard Bernstein and we all have some relationship to his music, but a lot of that is strangely missing here. I mean, there's a really sort of clever use of like the sharks versus jets theme from West Side Story that happens in this sort of mischief making moment where he's on a bender with his gaze. Um, But And the other thing is like then this other notable period of his life that Bradley Cooper chose to ignore, which um, Tom Wolfe sort of lampooned in an essay in The New Yorker about this um, called um, Radical Chic about this. That's right. Hard he had for the Black Panthers with a bunch of rich white people in his Upper West Side apartment. Um, there's just, there's so many interesting episodes of his life that this really doesn't touch on, and I don't have an answer for why he felt like this was necessarily the way in. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, it it, it works in, in a lot of ways, but I think that also sort of works against it. You know, I said, and I reviewed this movie out of Venice and I said that he, Bradley Cooper exerts and exhausts his soul for the movie, which I think is very evident. You know, he's, I mean, he's directing, he's producing, he's acting, he's donning a fake nose. I mean, that's a whole other thing that we've probably, you guys probably already talked about on other episodes. No, 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 because we didn't, we hadn't seen it, um, both of us. Uh, the, the nose thing uh, I don't know. I thought that the makeup, when it was in color, when he was older, that the makeup was extraordinary, actually, really good. And the way that he ages is just fascinating. I loved it. I loved that that aspect of it. But when you have him in black and white as a young man, as a lean young man, maybe his face is leaner and then the nose sticks out more. I don't know. But I felt like the makeup was more evident in black and white. It was a yeah, weird thing. Exactly. And that's part of the issue, I think, in those sequences that are in in monochrome is that you never forget it's Bradley Cooper doing this, right? And then yeah. it's like the Kazuhiro makeup in the older period where he's sort of leathered and it's like he's been, you know, he, I mean, he's never without an ashtray in his hand. Like he clearly is dissipated. Never without a cigarette hanging out of his yes, mouth. Exactly. And so, you know, he, he looks dissipated and I think the makeup, you're right, in those sequences, it works in his favor. But it's just, I mean, it's just... Uh, it's not, 
I, I don't feel like Leonard Bernstein had this prodigious nose that needed pointing out. You know, it's like, I don't, did we not learn anything from the Nicole Kidman, Virginia Woolf of it all? Or maybe we learned the wrong things. I don't she know. She got away with it and won an Oscar. Yes, That's exactly. the point there. So, yeah. uh, you know, that at, fight. Uh, at, at Harvey won. Weinstein's behest. It was his idea. I know. Did they do the nose. <laughs> I know, I know. And then and then the other, the, but, but, the, but here's what happens, is that Carrie Mulligan, who's playing Felicia, um, is this extraordinary character. And she is in love with him. And she becomes a pivotal part of his life and his family. He cares about the family deeply. And you see lots of scenes with, with them and the children. And, and then uh, later on in life, as is true, if you look up his bio, um, she gets sick and he looks after her and loves her dearly. And it's so moving. I wept. I wept and wept. And I was not alone in the theater. And so when you get emotion like that, that's so overpowering in a movie where you care about a character and the people who care about that character, you um, that takes over the movie. And so Carrie Mulligan takes over the movie. She does. And it's interesting. There was a variety story calling for Mulligan to consider shifting to a supporting actress. I find that absurd. Which would be egregious category fraud. I don't know how you could see that movie and just like not like dispute that she is the co-lead because and then we've already talked. It's like they were a two-hander. It's a two-hander. So so we looked at the actress race last week because we talked about Lily Gladstone, and we can move into that discussion again. And when we talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, which you have now seen, but the trick here is that the actors are pushing each other out. So actresses. So you have um, Carrie Mulligan front and center giving Emma Stone some competition. Uh, poor things is top and, and, and should be the one to beat. It would be very unlikely for Emma Stone to win a second time after she's already won. And so soon. La Land. Yeah. So that's a, that's an unlikely thing, but, but the, but, but people are saying that that performance is so extraordinary, and I agree, it is, that she should win a second time, that, that, that's, that that's what it is. So I, um, I would say Carrie Mulligan is the one who's been nominated twice and hasn't won, right? So that, that she's overdue. And, and you have Margot Robbie, uh, who is extraordinary as Barbie, um, and Lily Gladstone. Uh, so let's talk, let's talk Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. So last night I went to the um, New York premiere of Killers of the Flower Moon at Alice Tully at Lincoln Center. It was a veritable who's who of New Yorkers um, and New York film people. Um, I, I was in line with Ellen Burstyn getting my ticket. John Waters was there. He brought us his date, um, his serial mom star, Kathleen Turner. Um, the Safdie brothers were there. They did not sit together. Um, I'm not inferring anything about their personal relationship, but they are on a creative hiatus. You know, Benny is a co-creator of this um, upcoming Showtime series, The Curse, and Josh is directing- Which is Emma Stone, movie, right? Which right? is Emma Stone. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Fran Lebowitz was there, Michael Imperioli, <laughs> Ken Vonnegut, all these people. Um, and it's interesting with that movie, um, all three hours and 26 minutes of it. I was talking to someone afterward and I came out of it. And I don't want to just reduce this movie to talking about awards because that is something that Martin Scorsese, we know he hates that. He doesn't like reducing, talking about movies to box office or awards. But I said to someone afterward, this has big 11 nominations and one win energy. Um, <laughs> you mean it's even, it's closer to the Irishman. Uh, yes, which had 10 nominations and, and, and one. Now, yeah. 
Um, and it's just, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on with this, which is based on the David Grand book. And, you know, we are seeing um, white men come into this um, moneyed um, Osage community in Oklahoma and basically whitewashing the community and, and bleeding them of their money. And so it does work as this sort of suspense piece. And I think that it is pretty propulsive across its three and a half hours. The length is like another issue that that we can get into. But it's interesting how um last week lily gladstone or we you know we learned that apple is now positioning her as a lead and i i'm it's i don't know that i it's nothing against her she's very good but i don't know that i see it as a commanding lead actress performance i mean she's dying in bed for much of the movie um and you know before um eric roth asked to do a lot of rewrites she had actually much more dialogue in the original version of the script Really, really. Now, I I talked to I I listened to this extraordinary uh, thing that Eric Roth did with on the Roger Deakins podcast. This was a while ago, a long time ago, and he really did go on about how he had written the an adaptation of the script that was very close to the book, and the book is all about the FBI guy that's played by Jesse Plemons, and the book is all and it's 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 a great character. A wonderful character, a character you really dig into and root for, and and he's it's it's got that mis- solving a mystery aspect of it. He's the one who's trying to figure out exactly what happened and why all these people are being. It's a serial killer situation, right? So um, what we discover eventually, you know, we know this is is it's Leonardo DiCaprio's character is is married to the Lily Gladstone character. His uncle is the gangster of the piece, played by Robert De Niro, and Robert De Niro is great in this he's as good as he's ever been i agree but there's something he isn't even over the top in any way he's actually restrained it's effortless and it's kind of a very like i'm at my mark here's my line kind of performance in the way that's sort of charming like he just he's just such a professional classic actor that it's just you don't you're not seeing the effort ooze out of him that maybe you are Leo DiCaprio Leo is oozing effort. Yes, is the yes. point here. He's got the teeth and the worked up mouth, and he's that, like, he's like trying to do that thing where he's downplaying his glamour, right? Yes, yeah. Um, and it's interesting as he starts to become more aware of what he's doing and how he's part of this killing machine. There is like a sort of interesting, almost Hitchcockian element of you know, it's not really a spoiler because this is a true story. He's slowly poisoning his wife over time and becomes aware of it eventually, but keeps doing it anyway. And it's but not he seems clear. to be in love with his wife. There's no, I mean, he acts as if he's he he adores her and is is trying to save her, and she believes that until a certain point. But I. I, I think the whole question of making her the lead, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week, but the idea is that it gives her more stature and gravitas somehow. And I have left her in my predictions. I have. I didn't take her out. I, t- I, t- I you know, Annette Benning is gone. Natalie Portman is gone. You know, this is what are we have to wait and see how these movies are received and how well they do. It could be that they come back in. You know, and someone else goes out. Sandra Huller, I'm hanging on to because I believe in her for Anatomy of a Fall. But but we'll see. You know, I, I could be more optimistic about that than I should be. I don't know that the script rises to the challenge of the stature that it is now she's now being elevated on as lead actress. I'm not I'm not sure about that. I'm you know the yeah, movie is is is, is full of wonderful things. You know, it looks incredible. The production design is amazing. The, the the detail of the filmmaking, all of it is extraordinary. And yet there's something wrong with Jesse Plemons' character coming in two hours 
hours into the movie. It just isn't right. And he is given short shrift and there's so much more. I mean, it is, I know I read the book. It's partly my problem that I read the book, but I know there's more there that we, that that has been left on the cutting room floor basically. And there, and there was, and there was in an original script that now they flipped the script and, you know, Leo was supposed to play that FBI character. Of and then, course. And he yeah, said he and, wanted the other one. That's how it switched. And, yeah. So, so that's a fascinating, that's a fascinating story in itself. And I, I really look forward. I hope I get to ca- talk to Eric Roth about that because, and Scorsese, because I just think it's, it's fascinating how you make, they don't want it to be the white man's savior story. And they're very sensitive about that. So they're going over the top. That's part of what they're doing with Lily Gladstone. They're going over the top to say, this is about the Osage. This is about indigenous people and how they've been exploited. This They, they want it to be that story, which has a lot to do with Oscars. I wonder how it's going to do at the box office at this length. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's another issue. Um, this is a movie that I can see people watching in segments when it's, when it's streaming on Apple, you know, which I know a lot of people did with the Irish. Irish yeah, and, that's true. I mean, you know... <laughs> It's been, it's in, it's another one of these years where it's like if somebody who's never seen a movie came to me in 2023 saying what is a movie I'd say it's an experience of at least 2.5 hours like we're just we're that you know and I will be lambasted for this because we're definitely in a moment where people are defending filmmakers' rights to make movies as long as they want and as I'm long all- as they pull it off I mean Anatomy yeah. of a Fall is another one. I love Anatomy of a Fall. This is the Palme d'Or winner. That's half English, half French. Sandra Huller is under duress. She's uh, in the courtroom. Uh, this is a must-see movie. It's one of the best movies of the year, but it's two and a half hours. It takes a while to get to get to the end. And I, I, don't I if I if it's justified, I, I just don't know. I I don't know either, but it does feel like. I mean, I watch these kind of like true crime drama series constantly. And so it's like, to me, it felt like I was just luxuriating in one of those in a theater. So I had no problem with the length, but I know, you know, I know some people who have. Um, It's what's interesting about that movie, something that came up um, right after our podcast last week was that France ended up submitting The Taste of Things. um, Which I predicted, which I actually thought Um, it would be, yeah. And then, but then like immediately after Justine Trier goes on social media and she's reposting people like shitting on the choice saying the, the, the committee, which by the way, had people like Olivia Esaias on it, went with the boring choice. And I don't think that the taste, and I'm just wondering, like, I don't even think these people have seen the taste of things. I because think there was a knee jerk reaction to the fact that so many women have been overlooked. Now, sometimes they do put the woman on, you know, they, they went with Titan, which, which was a mistake. You know, but but they're they're the I mean, anyone who's <laughs> I love that movie, but anyone who saw it knows that that's not the Academy taste. And oh, but, but I applaud your take on the taste of things because it's a very sophisticated movie. It is a beautifully made movie from the director of The Scent of Green Papayas. It is extremely there's an opening sequence with food with these this um Julia Binoche plays this amazing chef and she's putting this incredible meal together, turning, moving the pan, getting the, everything is like clockwork. It was the most challenging, difficult sequence to shoot in his career. The guy sweated bullets to get this to work. 
It's amazing what he does. And it's, it's just Juliette Binoche. There's like no dialogue. It's just her cooking for like the first 45 minutes of the movie. And it's almost experimental in the way that it immerses you in the sort of sensuous pleasures of food and food making. And the way you hear the feet sort of clacking on the tiles as she's moving from the stove to the sink. I mean, it's just, it's so beautiful. And, you know, and it's not actually, it's not dissimilar to Anatomy of the of Fall in the sense that they're both in a way about a woman who's, sort of navigating a schism between her vocation, the things she's good at, and then her status as a wife or woman in the world. Um, but something about this particular choice for people has elucidated it's a, a period. dividing line. It's made. period. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, a, she, what's really cool about the taste of things is that I'm not going to remember the guy's name, but the, the man, the lead actor. And Juan Maginel. Um, thank you very much. They used to be a couple. And, yeah. and so this is, uh, they had to be talked into doing this together. I mean, it wasn't like they had ever made up or become friends right. again. And, right. and so that, that there's a, the intimacy of this couple is extraordinary uh, over the course of, of the movie. Um, I highly recommend The Taste of Things, not just as food porn, but as filmmaking. Um, so I defend it. But the reason that they, that A, Anatomy of Fall was long, B, there were these issues with how much English was in it, and C, um, it, it is, they were, a lot of people were arguing that it, it didn't get picked partly because it was a woman director. I don't think that's why. I think they thought The Taste of Things was a stronger candidate. And but now the fact that it's not representing France in the international feature race, I mean, what does that mean for its chances in the other categories? I mean, I'm trying to think like historically of another film that broke through without having that, um, you know, imprimatur. language thing. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. Well, it is unusual. It is unusual. But the um, I think I think Neon uh, uh, is going to go all the way with it. Right. Yeah, they're going to push. Yeah, they're going to push. And the the idea is that Sandra Huller is, in fact, um, a strong candidate. And they've got her supporting for the zone of interest. So that makes sense to break it up. And, like and she's very good in that as a sociopathic wife of a Nazi commandant who is operating. Unbelievable. It's Unbelievable. Totally different Chilling. movie that we will, about, we will yes. dig but, into. But that will add luster in each each of those uh, races to her to her candidacy. And she's getting a lot of, of press attention as well and i'm i interviewed her so i'm looking for she's not sag so she can yeah. she's free to talk to people yeah, yeah 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 so the other movie that we saw um perfect well anatomy of a fall anatomy of a fall could be best picture it could be uh director or or screenplay or actress but i would suggest to you probably in all likelihood actress is what it will be yeah the other categories are really competitive. So you finally saw Perfect Days, the Vim Vendors Japanese entry. I, I did see it. And um, it's I, I was really curious to see it because I'm actually I'm going on a vacation that to Japan that will include Tokyo in a few weeks. So I was, you know, I was really it is so transportive and immersive. The star of the movie is Koji uh, Yakusho, who uh, won Best Actor at Cannes. And he plays um, a person who cleans the public toilets in Japan. And it's, he has very little dialogue. He does not say much in this movie. He's got a, um, he's got a colleague who's much younger, um, a little more incompetent, um, who he has some interactions with, but he, and he's very shut off from the outside world in the sense that he is very kind of a lonely island of a man. Um, at one point, a, a niece kind of, in a moment that I think injects some melodrama in the movie that threw me out of it, a niece shows up to stay with him and she's sort of teaching him the ways of the 21st century. He's never heard of what Spotify is. 
Uh, he thinks it's a shop. Like there's these sort of funny moments where it's like, oh, he's kind of an old guy who's a little bit out of sync with the rest well, of he's the he's analog world. is what he is. He's That's not right. digital. Right. Yeah. But he listens to wonderful music in his car. Every morning he has this ritual and you follow him day after day after day, you know, getting ready for work and having the, the coffee from the machine and, and listening to really great music from the 80s, basically on cassette tapes in his car, which are a big hit yeah, with his young friends. Brown. You know, they yes. like to listen to this music yeah. and and uh, it's it is such a I don't know, Ryan, it's a brilliant movie, I think. And I, I think the niece is very important. The niece accepts him. She she sees him. She recognizes him as as something of value. Yeah, I, I see that. I don't I don't know what it was. There was something about there. there's definitely a message of sort of a. I don't want to say like carpe diem, but there is sort of a like appreciate the little things in life and sort of slow down that I found a little sanctimonious in some way. And I don't know if I'm, the, I think I'm not the only person who feels that way. Um, it, it was a cute, it was a cute movie. I thought it was cute for all the good and bad that that entails. It in a way that's really annoying, Ryan, that, that is, that is it. it. <laughs> I, I I guess I take the movie more seriously. I, sure. I I think I think I think maybe it has to do with the time of life also because that may be it. He's turned his back. He's turned his back on on his family uh, on whatever wealth he had. You know, at one time you get to learn some of those things over the course of of the movie, and he does what he does, which is cleaning toilets really well and takes it seriously. Um, and he and he stops for lunch every day and and with his with his little lunch packet and looks up at the trees and appreciates his life. And I I was moved very deeply by this movie. You, yeah, you you perhaps you met it more on the terms it was probably asking a person to meet them on right and yeah it could be it could have to do with the time of life interesting <laughs> um so uh but what's interesting about vim vendors is that he's actually been nominated unusually i think he's the only one who's ever had this many is he has three oscar nominations in the doc uh category for the salt of the earth and for buena vista social club and for pina the 3d dance choreographer portrait and he is up for another movie this year, Anselm, which is uh, a also in 3D, another artist portrait. And and this is this is the foreign language. Now he's he's been submitted by Germany several times for things like Wings of Desire, one of the great movies ever made, in in my opinion. And American Friend, he was submitted, but and Pina, but they didn't get nominated. So he's never been nominated in the foreign language uh, branch. So I, I'm rooting for him. He's 78 years old and I think uh, deserving of, of some attention. I'd be curious to see if Perfect Days actually does anything at the at the box office. Like maybe yeah. people respond to it. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. It's But I agree he's overdue. And, you know, I was talking to a colleague who's 25 the other day, relatively well versed in the current cinema. He did not, he had no idea who Vim Vendors was. And that makes yeah, me sad. Crazy. It's like, he's a, he's an all time auteur. And I think he's not getting appreciated anymore in the way that he should be. I mean, just like he did Paris, Texas, which is one of the, was on at the, the top, like almost at the top of our list of the best eighties films of all time, you know? Good. It's an Good. infallible classic. He did get the silver medallion tribute in, in Telluride, so he's he's gotten some attention. But we 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 hope we, we will we will see more of him vendors. It's just great to see somebody you know performing at the top of his powers at this at this stage. You know, it really is. So the Golden Globes 
have uh, added two categories. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating situation where they don't have a home. We don't know where they're going to be broadcast. NBC, there, there's no... If they're going to be broadcast. <laughs> yeah, we, they'll find something, but they haven't done it yet. And, if, and whenever they do find it, it, it will be... Uh, you know, a cut of, you know, 60, I think they got 60 million in licensing fees from, from NBC and it's not going to be, be like that. But what do you make of this, you know, this stand-up comedy category and this, this, like, it's a version of the Oscars, you know, most popular film. Well, the stand-up one, which, um, uh, Judd Apatow already lambasted on Twitter saying, what does this unfunny group of people know about comedy? That one seems like they're trying to move the needle to some sort of broadcast partner. That one that one seems strategic in some way, right, in part. Whereas the Cinematic Bo- and Box Office Achievement Award, already such um, uh, sort of airless terms anyway, that I'm not sure I understand what that's trying to be. I guess this feels like a refurbished version of what the Academy came up with and then didn't end up delivering in 2018, which was the best popular film award. And the, you know, the the parameters of this are the movie has to have grossed at least 100 million during its release and 100 million, 150 million during its release, 100 of which had to come from domestic box office. Or it could have a large streaming berth with a sort of commensurate, very vague, very vague, very vague. Measure that. Like, what are we? Are we just awarding? Like, you know, Netflix sends out the top ten movies. There it is. (laughs) Are we just awarding that that movie? And then, in terms of the box office achievement, are we just? Or, you know, are we just awarding Barbie as this sort of preordained in some way? You know, but they would have, I mean, as Marcus pointed out, Marcus Jones in, in our story that we did, you know, they, Mar- Barbie and Oppenheimer, these big box office hits are already in the conversation. They're already being taken seriously on their own merits. This just gives gives them an opportunity to take them out of a more serious. But here it is. It's the Golden Globes. We don't take them seriously anyway. We don't know who they are. We don't know who their members are. I'm hearing stories that they're really trying to limit the number of members that are getting paid the $75,000 a year, that they're kicking people out, people are resigning. There's, there's, They are finally culling the herd, if you like, um, in a way that, that they haven't in the past and should have done years ago. Uh, right. So we'll see if they're able to, to uh, untaint the the organization it'll it'll take some time but we at this stage we don't know who they are no, they have um, no credibility no and there's been there have been cullings in recent years that never delivered and never they never sort of stuck the landing on any of them and so this hopefully is an a opportunity for a real reputation rehab uh, whether or not they will meet that expectation we who knows reputation rehab is exactly <laughs> what they need <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're we're good now. Coming up next, Brian Welk. We're going to talk about the strike. So we are uh, bringing onto screen talk uh, our colleague Brian Welk, who works. Um, with me in the LA office, although we never go in, so we don't see each other. <laughs> it's not like we're hanging out a lot. I wish we were, but. Um, Brian has been the guy on the ground doing the reporting on the strike day in, day out uh, for months now, obviously since May. And so uh, we thought we'd bring him on and get some inside intel and analysis about the strike, which the Writers Guild finally uh, resolved with with the AMPTP. Um, And I guess my first question, I mean, do you think that the writers came out way ahead here? I mean, this looks like a big win for them. 
thank you both for having me. And yes, I do. I think there's they addressed all the different deal points that they had in mind, things that people said were non-starters early on, things that just had never been a thing before, things that were never on the negotiating agenda before, whether it's AI or the success-based residual. These are things that they actually got movement on and they they are now enshrined into a contract. And I think that's a big deal. And now did they get every single ask that they wanted or did they get the numbers that they originally demanded? No, but I think a lot of these things, including minimum staffing, including, you know, having higher residuals and other aspects, not just on the money end, but they got some of those other poor tenants, things that started to disappear in Hollywood for writers really put back and enshrined and like these things are the norms and they can't go away. And I think that there was really the crux of it, that they talked about this existential crisis and we can't survive anymore. And they, they were able to get these things back. Well, Brian, what about the AI element of it all? Because this obviously, as someone who, you know, I'm working on the news desk all day, this has become the viral sort of talking point that has reached a lot of people outside of the industry from both sides of the strike, both from the WJ and SAC. I, I will say, you know, when I first started reporting on this, I think I was not alone in thinking, oh, this would be an easy ask. This would be just yeah, sure. We won't use AI movies. We won't do that. Or, we, you know, let's move on. But it became the issue and it became the issue that held things up up until the final night, up until Sunday into Yom Kippur. You know, when we were thinking, I, I was really thinking Yom Kippur was like, oh, no, the sun has set. This isn't happening tonight. You know, I was prepping a shell of no deal today. We move on, you know, and um but it did get done and they were really particular about the language that was in there because that was the crux of it. And I mean, one of the things that they got, and this is based on a conversation that I did with, um, with John August, the screenwriter for Big Fish. And he was really a linchpin early on in the, the WGA negotiations for like, hey, this is something we need to pay attention to with AI. And what they did, they got some basic tenets of AI is not a human and it can't rewrite your work. It can't, you can't be offered something that is AI and, um, you know, be asked to rewrite it because that affects your credits, that affects the money that you get. And it also can't replace your work. And there's so many facets of it. But what he even explained to me is that even the studios have concerns about AI and they don't they necessarily- want copyright, copyright. Yes, exactly. And they are looking at these tech companies who are not in the AMPTP, who might also be you know, feeding models, training data and, and doing things. So th there is a, a concern and they are aligned on some of these things. Now they still want to be able to maybe experiment and do things. Um, but it's now a conversation, and if the, the the studio does want to use AI, they have to inform the writer of that decision. Um, and the and then big the thing writer's was, allowed to rewrite the AI, right? Yes, if if they if they choose, if I mean, because they can also choose. No, I I don't want to. I don't want anything to do with AI, and that's that's now enshrined in the contract. But yeah, the the big 
aspect was who's are they training AI models with the writer's material? And August mentioned this to me that yes, they are workers for hire. The other the studios own the copyright on these scripts that they've produced. But what they agreed to or they left basically unsettled is this issue of being able to litigate this stuff moving forward of who owns what. And they did this with the acknowledgement that the law is still evolving on this. The, the conversation is still growing and changing. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm really curious about the, the behind the scenes um, of it, you know, the Chris Kaiser of it. There, there was a story in the Hollywood Reporter by Kim Masters and, and I just uh, sort of a behind the scenes thing, but what it came down to was that the showrunner uh, negotiator had a relationship with Bob Iger, was able to reach out to him and talk him into coming back. Is that true? Into uh, bringing them. The I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think the, the thing too was that they all talked about how that, that first meeting of them going down there and you know, this was on the 22nd and they felt like they got lectured. And I mean, what I had heard kind of through the grapevine was like, there were conversations with like showrunners that, you know, they, to these, to the, the, the executives, like, look, like if you agree to these sorts of things, this will get done. And, and, and why else would they have gone down there the first time if they didn't think they were going to get a deal, if they didn't think they were if something was going to happen and they left that room pretty embarrassed because that left to a month long standoff. So then at that point you started to see, and I think this, you know, I am piecing this together from, you know, some of conversations I've had and also what, what others have reported, including Kim, but you started to have these people asking questions of like, we're, we're not dissenters. We're not breaking from the pack or we're not trying to go around you. But we want to know what's going on. We want to know why aren't you guys talking? Where is the urgency? How soon can we get this done? And that's why you had that showrunner meeting that was supposed to happen and then it didn't happen and, you know, back and forth. And then finally they met and the, the CEOs were all in the room. And and I, I think that was, you know, again, what I was told was that was a, a different change of pace that they really were engaging at this point on the, the meat and potatoes on the, the, you know, the fine details that the writers really wanted. And there were things that even were like kind of late ass, like this right to be able to respect picket lines, which meant would have meant that they might not go back to work right away. And they would have still been there or not crossing the picket lines with SAG, but um, they didn't agree to that ultimately either. So no, they walked out. They walked out of the meeting. Uh, yeah, they, uh, allegedly. Like yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, allegedly. No, I know. That was a yeah, bad thing. Yeah, piece. Yeah, but they had so. to come back. They had to come back and say this is an, not important. I think it was Zaslav. I'm just remembering what I read, but he, he basically said this isn't important. Give it up, dude. You're at the finish line. Go for the for the end of what you really want. I'm wondering now that the writers can get back to work. Obviously, we got to wait on the actors, but there's going to be a glut of pre-productions that can re resume that's going to be hard on supply and demand in terms of available talent. I mean, there's so many movies like Warner's has the Batman sequel or James Gunn's Superman legacy. Um, and then we've got on, t on the TV side, like now, you know, HBO, its flagship 
series like White Lotus, Euphoria, Last of Us. There were no scripts even for for any of those yet. And then, of course, there's something like House of the Dragon, which basically already finished filming. So that one, that's probably going to roll out next summer. But what do you think are the priorities and what do you think is the path ahead for um, studios and networks sort of staring down the barrel of like, we need to keep going to get back to pre-pandemic levels? Well, I mean, one of the things that was explained to me in terms of like why the writers ended up being first as opposed to the actors, because I think a lot, some of the conventional wisdom was, hey, maybe the actors would be a little easier to deal with and that we could get this done with them sooner. But the writers now you're at a position where the writers can start picking up some of that development again they could start writing these scripts and then in the time that it takes the actors to get done now you have things ready to go and you have you can immediately start shooting and just you know get out of the starting gate as soon as the the new contract is is lifted or, or the strike is lifted so in that sense you're kind of I, i've been hearing different timelines and it all depends on how the actors' negotiations go, but people are looking at like November or Thanksgiving, like early November, and sometimes you're talking about, well, okay, now you've got the 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 um, the holidays. So, does do things really start until you know first thing in January and at start of the new year? Those are all factors that. I think are, you know, people are weighing and doing these calculations right now at the studio level, figuring out when can we get going again. Um, but as you know, late night shows immediately coming back um, and you're going to start, how can we get the fall TV season going as soon as possible? And the films, I mean, I'm working on a story on this and this should be something that might come out soon, but there are a lot of questions about like there's a lot of movies that stopped midway through they have a couple days left some have you know a couple weeks left and in in that regard a lot of these gladiator, have, gladiator sequel is one gl- gladiator is one um deadpool is another um i mean the, wicked has a couple days left you know any of these big studio movies and all of them have kept their stages. They've kept sets built in locations. So the, the expectation is that once this is done, you will be able to get people coming back really soon. And yes, there's going to be some scheduling issues like down the road. And there's going to be questions about the, the release calendar, maybe not in 2024, but more likely in 2025 and really long down the road. But those movies that were already in the pipeline, those get the priority. Those are going to be the ones that are going to come back first. I think th- there's a whole other story there on the indie side of things um, that I don't need to get into right away. They're but- getting pushed back, all of those indie projects. They're the ones who are getting the lowest priority now. Right. right. I mean, yeah. And the indies, the indies are going to be scrappy like they always are. I mean, I talked to a producer yesterday who was like, there is still arguably a window where we can like have something written, get an interim agreement for it, start shooting. And then, you know, but the, the, window of doing that is so slim and so tricky that if you're if the if sag makes a deal while you're in production and now they have to go do something else you're screwed and so i I don't know 
how likely that really is going to be. But I mean, a lot, some of those movies have done the interim agreements and there's been a lot of just scrappy stuff. So yes, those will be the ones that will, you know, find gaps, but there there are going to be opportunities and it's going to be, you know, give or take, I think. Is it possible for you to give us a sense of the transparency and the bonuses and this whole thing about the 20%, you know, it's like a certain level of success, which is hard to achieve. Let's say the squid game would get it, you know, um, they would get the money that they deserved if it came up, you know? Yeah. So, so the rule is you need 20% of a, of a a streamer's entire um, domestic subscriber. So it's, it's domestic subscribers only. So, if you're Netflix, you know, that there's a lot of global subscribers that are in there. And basically this model, and it's also for movies that were made for streaming under uh, above $30 million on the movie end. Um, So that does leave out some maybe indies or smaller, like, you know, Hallmark-esque movies that, you know, maybe won't qualify for this, this bonus. But on the, the series end, um, the reason that they went for this percentage of, you know, this threshold, as opposed to say, Hey, it needs 50 million views or it needs a hundred million or whatever. It, if you're on Peacock right now, you're never going to get there. That, that's, this is what, again, John August explained to me. And I think it, it's just obvious. If, if you just had straight views, you're never, ever going to get there on some of these smaller niche streaming services. It would be the, the Netflix rule only but by doing it as a percentage it opens up the door for other more writers on a bunch of different shows and what's going to have to happen now is how well is this actually going to work how many movies or shows are actually going to benefit from this and that's still to be decided to explain the and transparency part, like you, so five trans- people get to look at the numbers, but they have to sign yes. an NDA. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it'll be still confidential. I, I think a lot of people were expecting, is this going to be more open? Is this going to be like box office reporting? Is this going to be, you know, the floodgates are open and who knows how many of these things are going to leak or whatever, but over time, but ultimately, yes, they, there's the guild has a certain privilege to, share with showrunners and then they'll be able to do more stuff in the aggregate sharing with other members the, the idea though is like you got to give the creators of these shows at least some idea of how their shows are doing and i, I think you will th- there will be some more understanding and it will at least give the creators at least material or a, a, an ability to negotiate down the road and but if you know for press purposes for our purposes of like we want to know how what are the hits what are the flops uh that i don't know if we're going to get that and um that, so that didn't come out but we have to have a, I think, going with the top 10 i guess yeah so they're getting back to talks on monday with sag so there's a there is a new uh <laughs> stage of this um, Brian, before you go out, uh, what do you think? We talked about AI. What do you think the other big issues with SAG are going to be? For one, on just the the raw minimums, I think what is going to be interesting to watch is SAG wanted 11% in the first year, and the writers got 5%, and that's what the directors got too. 
So that's a big gap. And, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to agree to that or settle on that. Um, so just that money on its own could be an issue. There's other things like self-tapes that is something I was looking at. It's not exactly the sexiest topic, but, you know, when I talked with, with Duncan, uh, Duncan Crabtree Ireland about this, he said that, yeah, we actually agreed to a lot of these things, but there's all these loopholes and things that make them kind of toothless and meaningless that they, they don't have the same impact and effect. So I think there's still work to do there. And as we already mentioned, AI will be a big thing. There's going to be a lot of nuances that they have to deal with in questions. Well, thank I, I think those, those are the questions. Yeah. So much. This was really illuminating. And thank you actually for doing all the work. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Brian has been working his ass off for a long, long time. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And it'll be fun to move on to things that are not strike related and hopefully not become the IndieWire's labor guy exclusively. But <laughs> <laughs> you've done great. Thanks a lot.